0: Anyone who watches crime dramas could reasonably conclude that when someone is murdered, barring bizarre and extenuating circumstances, the case is solved. That is, through high-tech forensics, moral resolve, or simply the near-mythic competence of American law enforcement, killers are ultimately sent to jail. But as an investigative reporter who has worked in one of the most violent cities in the country for nearly 15 years, I can tell you, this is not true.
1: And that is the point of this podcast, because unsolved killings represent more than just statistics. It's a psychic toll of stories untold that infects an entire community. The final violent moments of a victim's life that remain shrouded in mystery.
0: I'm Stephen Janice.
1: I'm Taya Graham.
0: And we are investigative reporters who live in Baltimore City.
1: Welcome to the land of the unsolved. Hello, my name is Taylor Graham, and welcome back to The Land of the Unsolved. The podcast explores both the evidence and politics of unsolved murders in Baltimore and beyond. Today, we're going to be talking about two cases, one that is at least partially solved and one that is not. But we're going to do more than just recount the evidence. We'll be looking at the past case through the prism of what has just happened in the present, breaking down how police investigated a recent murder and what their handling of it says about the growing tally of unsolved murders across the city. To do so, we will be reporting on breaking news about a horrifying act of violence that has rocked the city, the murder of 26-year-old Baltimore Tech CEO Pava LaPere.
0: Our top story tonight is out of Baltimore. We're hearing from the family of a Baltimore Tech CEO fatally attacked at her apartment complex. Police confirmed to NBC
1: News
2: the 26-year-old, who served as CEO of EcoMap Technologies and was featured on this year's Forbes 30 Under 30 list, was
1: found dead in her Baltimore apartment on September 25th with signs of blunt force trauma. LaPierre's body was found in her apartment building last week after friends reported her missing. Police said she died of blunt force trauma. Shortly after her body was found, police made a stunning announcement. There was indeed a suspect.
2: We're here to announce that we have a warrant issued for the killing of Ms. LaPierre. Um, today in consultation with the state's attorney's office, 32-year-old 32, 32 Jason Dean Billingsley of Baltimore, it was wanted for first-degree murder, assault, reckless endangerment, as well as additional charges. Our Special Investigation Section and Homicide Unit have been working aggressively to identify the suspect responsible for this tragic incident.
1: However, the history of the suspect, what the police knew about him before the murder, and how they chose to handle that information is not just shocking, but worth examining in detail. To do so, I will be joined by my land of the unsolved colleagues, legendary investigative reporter, Jane Miller, and my reporting partner, Steven Janis. We will analyze how police handled LaPierre's murder and discuss some key decisions they made that are raising serious questions about what more could have been done to prevent it. And ultimately, we will consider how all this evidence bears on a case from the past that has haunted all of us for some time. In fact, the way police handled Lepere's murder is so revealing, it speaks volumes about why this podcast exists at all. And that is why we'll be breaking it down in all of its appalling details. All of that coming up on the Land of the Unsolved. Hey, this is Taya Graham from the Land of the Unsolved. If you enjoy our podcasts and would like us to investigate even more cases, consider supporting our work by either subscribing on our anchor page, or you can also buy one of the books Stephen and I wrote that are available on Amazon and a variety of other websites. Why Do We Kill? The Pathology of Murder in Baltimore, written with former homicide detective Kelvin Sewell, and You Can't Stop Murder, truths about policing in Baltimore and beyond, also in collaboration with a former detective and guest on our show, Stephen Tabling. Or if you're in the mood for a fictive take on how Baltimore's struggle with violence and aggressive policing has affected the psyche of the city, I recommend you pick up This Dream Called Death, a book Stephen wrote while he was covering the city's failed attempt to implement zero tolerance policing and how he reveals the truly corrosive power of that policy by casting it into an alternate reality where the mind and our dreams become the new frontier for government surveillance. Welcome back to the land of the unsolved. As always, I'm joined by my colleagues, legendary reporter Jane Miller and my colleague Stephen Janis. Thank you both for joining me today.
0: Thanks for having us here, today.
1: Just two weeks ago, the residents of Baltimore woke up to a tragedy, news that yet another life had just been snuffed out. Authorities revealed that a local tech entrepreneur named Pavel Pear had been found dead in her Mount Vernon apartment. Police found her after friends called to report her missing over the weekend. Authorities said she had died of blunt force trauma. Shortly after police announced her death, the city began to mourn. paire was an up-and-coming tech CEO, a former John Hopkins graduate who had founded an eco-mapping firm that had gained her national recognition. Recently, she had secured $8 million in venture capital financing for her company. Forbes magazine had listed her as part of their 30 people under 30 to watch. She was active in the local tech community. Put simply, her future was not just bright. It was blazing. Stephen, what did the people who knew her say about her and how did the city react?
0: Well Baltimore has a very tight-knit um, tech entrepreneurial VC capital kind of community and the everyone who you know I listened to or what I read or what they were saying was basically that she was like this bright light that brought this community together. She had literally founded this company in her Hopkins dorm room and had decided to stay in Baltimore rather than, you know, this was a person who had options to go pretty much anywhere and decided to stay in Baltimore and build this firm. And she was a person that kind of was able to move between different companies and, and bring people together on a larger purpose of not just, you know, tech, but tech in Baltimore and, and had become sort of a, uh, I guess the public face of tech entrepreneurs in Baltimore and someone who was just critical to that community. So, there was a massive amount of grieving in terms of her loss, and it certainly people said it would leave a hole in that community because it's very people know each other, it's tight knit, and it's not large like Silicon Valley. Everyone knows everyone, and I think people were feeling her loss in that way.
3: And it's also what what gave this case national attention. I mean, this was on the evening news a couple of different times um, because of her stature in you know in in the tech world, et cetera. It's also, you know, the fact that she decided to, to remain in Baltimore yeah. was, you know, discussed at length because, you know, it's not, you know, Seattle. It's not the West Coast. It's not New York. But she really decided to stay here and to grow this business, um, and she was very committed also to equity issues, which, you know, the the whole tech industry is not is short on, you know, diversity and. And she was very committed to that as well.
0: I mean, that was the whole basis of her company, the eco-mapping maps ecosystem so people can understand where resources and assets are in a community. And yes, and I think critical to that was her commitment to Baltimore, which people said was fierce. And so that kind of added a note of extra sadness to this case.
1: Almost immediately, police had a suspect, a serial rapist who was well known to law enforcement, Jason Billingsley. They released a mugshot and used social media to let the public know that this man was armed and dangerous. But Jane, they knew quite a bit about this man even before they announced his identity because he was tied to a previous case. Can you tell us a little bit about it?
3: On September 19th, um, three days before the murder of Pavel LaPierre, there was an incident in a West Baltimore apartment in which um, Billingsley was accused of kicking down the door um, tying up the uh, man and woman young couple that lived in the apartment. Uh, he allegedly raped the woman, cut her, cut her throat, and then uh, before leaving, doused them with some kind of accelerant and set them on fire. Both had were hospitalized. Within hours, police developed him as a suspect. But they chose not to release his name or picture to the public at that time. And this became a huge issue and lots of questions later when, in fact, what we learned, obviously, is that three days later, he now is accused of killing Pavel her in her apartment building in Mount Vernon.
1: That's right. Billingsley had a long history of sexual assault rape, and violence. He had previously been sentenced to 30 years in prison in 2015 for forcing a woman at gunpoint to perform oral sex on him. That victim he had also strangled, though she fortunately survived. But the sentence included a catch. All but 16 years were suspended, which meant Billingsley was released in fall of 2022 for good behavior. Jane, can you walk us through um, how that release occurred?
3: This is an interesting case that brings up this issue of suspended sentences number 1 um, and also the issue of what are called diminution credits good time credits that is this is not new I, neither of these issues is new they have they come up many times when we have cases like this of violent repeat offenders that allegedly offend again and then everybody looks back and sees this history and it's like well oh, why wasn't he in jail why was he out this was a the the 2015 case sentence was actually relates to a 2013 incident um, in which he sexually assaulted a woman, and it gets time for trial. It had gone to court a number of times, postponed, postponed, et cetera. So now we get to February of 2015, and he enters a guilty plea to first-degree sex assault, which is a very serious crime. And the, um, one of the newspapers in town actually went and pulled the hearing, the transcript of the hearing so that there was an, and shed light on exactly what had happened. And what happened was that they reached this agreement for a 30-year sentence but suspend all but 14 years. And the prosecutor said that the woman, the victim, was very satisfied with that deal, that she had been through enough. Um, and this, this raises, let's just stop right there. You know, I've done many stories in my career about the way sex assault cases are handled in the courts um the way they have to be handled sometimes it it is a terrible crime it, it's a frightening crime the victim goes through the crime and then has to go through the trial and sometimes going through a trial in testimony can be brutal obviously and so in and this case raises that specter is that she was you know she didn't want to testify clearly The judge didn't like the deal but said, you know, because of the trauma to the victim, he accepted it. Um, So he ended up with a 14-year sentence backdated to start date in 2013 because that was the date he had been locked up originally for the incident. And then a combination of good time credits and what's called mandatory release. So most offenders in in Maryland serve about 66 percent of their sentence. Um, And when you add some good time credits in there, he ended up serving about nine years. When he came out in October of 2022, he was under the supervision of probation and he was on the sex offender registry as a level three offender. um, That means that he has even more supervision and has to check in more, et cetera, et cetera. Apparently no violations until the time of these most recent crimes.
1: You know, just out of curiosity, I noticed that Billingsley had several previous convictions. I think in 2009, there was a first-degree assault. In 2011, a second-degree assault. 2015, a first-degree sex offense. Um, Are you surprised by how he was able to get such a minimized sentence considering his record?
0: Well, I don't think the sentence was really that unusual. Uh, based on what, you know, Jane was saying. And, you know, I I looked at the the crime. The crime, the assault case was he stole $10 from someone who he kind of uh, physically assaulted on the street. So they were kind of petty crimes in the parlance of Baltimore until the first-degree sex offense. I mean, the first-degree sex offense was you know a woman had been kicked out of her apartment by her boyfriend she had wandered down the street and sat at on you know next to an abandoned house he said do you want to spend he was she was approached by Billingsley who convinced her to crawl in through the window of another house and she could stay there for the night then she threatened then he said i have a gun you know you have to perform oral sex on me and strangle her to the point that she almost died but you know up until that point, the stuff he was doing, I looked at, was pretty petty. And in the scope of a city that has, you know, 300 murders a year, I'm not surprised. But I don't I don't think in the parlance of sentencing that I've watched that nine years is really a short sentence. Uh, Jane, I don't know how you...
3: No, I, I agree. I mean, you know, in covering these kinds of cases, this is, you know, first of all, suspended sentences are very common. Why do we have suspended sentences? It's like the carrot and the stick, you know. So you have an offender and... Okay, we're going to give you 30-year sentence, but we're only going to make you serve 14 unless you screw up. So now you screw up, you're going to come back, and I'm going to put you in jail for the rest of it. So it's like that whole, yeah. you know, it's an incentive um, for just people like to good, try to reform themselves.
0: Just right. Just like the good behavior. You know, that's supposed to okay. incentivize good behavior in prison to give you some reason to behave well and be try to be productive. I
3: guess. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I agree with Stephen, actually. In, and if you look at the whole specter of sentences— um, in in cases that might involve these particular circumstances and this particular offender plus you have the you know the the element that the victim may not want to testify that um, you know it's it's not it's, it's not a short sentence you know it's it looks like oh well, holy cow you only served half the sentence or you know he's only sentenced they have the but that, that's exactly how suspended sentences work um, I think the state's attorney said it was a tad under the guideline but, you know, you have to look at the circumstances that are, that, right. as he said, you have to look at the circumstances of the case.
1: So shortly after his arrest, police held a press conference. And Stephen, something really stood out. Police revealed again that they made a fateful decision. Let's listen and then we can talk about it after the break.
2: We were delayed that press conference because we were within about 88 meters of capturing the suspect, but he was able to elude our capture. We knew early on that the risk that the risk was when we went public that the suspect would go on the ground, which is exactly what he did. We are still processing all evidence to determine exactly what occurred. We do know that there was no forced entry in an apartment building, as this was a secured building.
0: Well, you know, Jane and I were watching the press conference, and Jane can weigh in after I do, but, you know, the Commissioner Worsley, um, who is just... Been, was actually texting,
3: are you watching this? Yeah.
0: <laughs> and he makes this admission because the question came up, you know, you, you had him as a suspect. He, he had already been charged. He had been charged with this crime allegedly before he murdered Lepere allegedly, excuse me, sorry. And, um, and the question came up in the press conference, why didn't you tell the public? Why didn't you release this information? And Worsley makes this sort of offhand comment how it was, quote unquote, a targeted uh, attack. and that, Not random. Not random. That was one thing. And then he said, I don't want to speak badly about the victims. Now, Jane, I don't know how you interpret that, but I was kind of stunned when he said that because he was saying one thing is we just didn't want to release this information because we didn't feel that this guy was a danger to the public is what they were saying in some ways. that He had just picked out this couple but wasn't going to do this again. And then he made this sort of victim blaming statement that also, I think, (laughs) you know, sort of created a firestorm of criticism.
3: Absolutely. I mean, very lots of criticism of this statement about victim blaming in a case that involved absolutely horrific allegations, torturous allegations, and this idea that it wasn't random, he knew the victims. He was the maintenance man in the apartment building, so he may have had knowledge of these folks who lived in the building. I would not call that as... You know, right. what, and this idea of it, so I don't know since when, uh, you know, oh, it's not random, so then we don't have to worry, you know, right. warn people. Right. What right. You know, when did that become some kind of standard for notifying the public? What, what has just, I, I've not been able to understand the thinking in this case, considering the Baltimore Police Department, as many police departments do, they put out pictures and video Absolutely. all the time. All the time. About different incidents, whether or not they're random, whether or not people know one another, et cetera. You know, I mean, they just, we just had this, you know, shooting on the campus of Morgan State University and they put some video out of some folks. It's a very common practice. And for whatever reason, in this case, on September 19th, when you have this really nasty incident that was covered in the media.
0: Mm -hmm. It was not a
3: was not. No, this was it got mm-hmm. coverage that day. And I do know that from talking to the reporters that covered it, that they, the police department was very tight lipped, wouldn't give a lot of information the day it happened on on September 19th. You know, and and we haven't talked about the the first news conference was when they identified right. Billingsley as the suspect in the LaPere murder. That was the first news conference,
0: Right. And, that, and in fact, that was the one where I think the, the comment was made that, the, uh, that once they identified him, that he was a suspect in the other case. And when I think that's when Worsley actually made the disparaging comment.
3: Well, it, the, the questions, though, that got raised were he was asked, the commissioner was asked at that news conference, when Billings was, was identified as the Lapair suspect, is he sus- a suspect in any other crimes? And I think they said yes, but there yeah. was no information. Right. No, they did not say which incident, you know, who, what happened, et cetera, et cetera. When they had a warrant for him, yeah. I mean, it was like, why are you keeping this from the public? Why is this such a secret? And then obviously, you know, and then it really emerges that, OK, it was that incident, you know, that it had already gotten media coverage. And then, you know, just this flood of questions about the failure to warn the public.
0: And I think what we see here uh, is how Baltimore sort of manages crime and what sometimes the misplaced priorities of the police department is. Because people I've talked to have said, you know, this is not uncommon for the police department to try to, if it can not, you know, sort of, I'm not going to use the word publicize, but make this information widely available because the fear is it will scare people and they won't want to come downtown and they won't want to go to the Inner Harbor. And I think I've seen this, I've seen this over and over again. You know, years ago, I covered a serial killer case in Baltimore and police were just adamant that they didn't want to connect cases or call someone a serial killer. It was much more important not the safety of the individuals, but much more important to make sure that there wasn't a serial killer in Baltimore. And that is why I think this got so much attention because it sort of illustrated the real, treacher- the real sort of risk of this kind of idea because, as Jane pointed out, they had this guy's identity. They could have released it to the public and made people aware, and they did not. And I think that's where the, the criticism has come from.
3: And there's this whole idea, too, of the, the use of the word targeted, Ooh. This is like a code word. You know, police departments do this everywhere. Oh, no, it was a targeted killing. In other words, you don't need to worry about this. Right. It was a targeted killing, okay? Well, I don't know what was targeted about that September 19th incident, except that it was, you know, kind of opportun- or maybe an opportunity presented itself. You know, what could have been targeted about the LaPere murder? I mean, that it, it, it just seems that it is an excuse in some ways to... First of all, we don't have to warn you about it. You shouldn't be alarmed. That's really what's code for you shouldn't be alarmed. When in fact, you had every reason to be alarmed about Jason Billingsley, Um, it it now appears, after that incident in, in West Baltimore.
1: You know, just to get a, a quick update, because this was such a vicious crime, it was a man, a woman, and a five-year-old child that were there was injured. A child present. There right. was a child right. present. Do we have any update on the status, the health of the people involved?
0: Well, they, they survived. We know that. But no, they have not released information. And we do know that Billingsley forced the door open, um, obviously, if this was targeted, the people didn't want to let him in the apartment so that he had forced his way in and then duct taped um, both the man and the woman and and then, you know, sexually and raped the woman and then, as Jane said, poured an accelerant on them. But we do know they survived. One was still in the hospital and one had been released at the time of the last press conference, but they haven't given any update on, like, what kind of injuries that I have heard in terms of, you know, long-term prognosis, no.
3: Billingsley, you know, is also accused of going to um, an acquaintance's house in Baltimore County and stealing a gun. This was um, three days after they believe LaPierre was killed. So now he's also accused of, of that. And I think that's where the idea of being armed came from, is that they had known that he had gone to that house in Baltimore County and stolen a gun.
1: So this decision by police would seem even more misguided when they released the charging documents that outlined for the first time the evidence against Jason Billingsley. Gene, what did the documents say? And what did we learn about the last moments of LaPierre's life?
3: It's interesting. The um, charging documents indicate that there is video of the lobby of the apartment building. That shows on that Friday night, this would have been the 22nd of September, um, that you see her come in and sit down in the sofa in the lobby of the apartment building, which obviously kind of indicates that she was waiting for somebody. I mean, you know, waiting for somebody she knew was coming behind her. And then that the video shows this man that police have identified as Billingsley and be charged that it is Billingsley comes to the door, she lets him in, they talk for a moment in the lobby, and then they get on the elevator together, and about 20 minutes later, um, although i got to tell you, in that charging document, the times are all screwed up and hands scratched out <laughs> and corrected, but it appears that it was about 20 minutes later that this man, Billingsley, um, can be seen you know, scrambling to get out of the building, wiping his hands on his shorts. So... This raises a number of questions. First of all, was there a relationship of some kind, you know, either some knowledge, friendship, etc., between the two? Um, did they have some prior knowledge? But to me, this this raises this the, all, all the more underlines the importance of why that picture should have been in the public, because if that picture's in the public. And on social media, et cetera, maybe she doesn't go to the door.
1: Uh, Stephen, I had read that uh, one one, uh, media organization suggested that he was standing at the door as if he was signaling that he didn't have his key, that he needed help getting into the lobby. What did you think of that uh, assertion?
0: Okay, well, that's to me purely speculative because, you know, the charging documents at this point are all we have. But, of course, that's not unusual when you live in an apartment building and you don't know everyone who lives there and someone seems um, like they want to get in or they have somewhere to go or they know somebody. I mean, for all we know, she could have come to the door and he said, I know so-and-so and and I just need to get up to their apartment and um, the next thing, you know, he's attacking her. So that's totally possible. I mean, Jane, you had said you'd read some posts on Instagram that women in that neighborhood were yes. familiar with the, him?
3: They've been hanging. Well, first of all, in the charging document related to the gun allegation, his address is a block away from Lepere's apartment. So if that's his most recent address, then that would put him in the neighborhood. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know if there's, but there were posts on social media once he was identified as the murder suspect, that there were women that um, commented that they had seen him hanging around some of the apartments that he had approached some of the women, that, you know, had given them stories that you know his mother had died, etc., and which was not true, but no, it um, and it, so so he was apparently known in the community, and that is very possible that she had met him at some point too, you know that you know and and you know struck up a conversation with him or whatever um i mean don't know that we'll ever know this you know of what really transpired and what brought him to that apartment why she let him in etc and got on the elevator with him she was found on a roof of the apartment building um there was a brick that apparently had been used in the crime um and she'd suffered from strangulation and blunt force trauma
1: All of this, of course, raises the primary question at the heart of this podcast. How do the politics of crime affect and influence the occurrence of crime? In this case, that question can be best answered by pointing to the defense Baltimore Police Commissioner Worsley used to defend his decision not to release the information about Billingsley. Stephen, he said he did not release the information about the arson and the rape because police believed it was targeted. What does that mean?
0: Well, as we discussed before, and Jane can weigh in on this too, you know, I remember um, there was a famous quote by a former health commissioner, Peter Beelenson, it was very controversial, where he said, Baltimore is safe as long as you're not a drug dealer. Um, you know, because all these crimes are quote-unquote targeted. And if you're just a random white person, and I got to use the word, you know, it's got to be described as that, a white person living in the in the L.
1: Or a good law-abiding citizen
0: or a good law abiding citizen, all this chaos and mayhem is never going to touch you. And I think underlying that idea of targeted is that idea um, of, of what Baltimore's always tried to do, and that is corral crime into low-income neighborhoods and make it seem like something that won't touch the Inner Harbor or won't touch homeland or won't touch even Mount Vernon, um, and that, you know, we don't have to feel responsible or any way think about it, and we can just go on with our business and be Baltimore City. And all the idea about crime and how crime, you know, hampers the city, it's just unfounded because it only happens among poor African-American people in poor African-American neighborhoods. And I think this case exemplifies how dangerous that idea is, not only from a social justice perspective, which is really, in, to me, incomprehensible, because you're literally saying that the lives of the people in West Baltimore are not worth what the lives of the people are in Mount Vernon, but, you know, from a, just a practical perspective, sense that, you know, you are literally making decisions about withholding information from the public based primarily on the fact that you don't want to scare white people. And I mean, am I wrong on this, James? Well, no,
3: I, I, but you're, you're making a decision based on your perception of that crime, whatever that is. And, and God knows there are biased perceptions all over the place, you know. Um, but but this it gets back to this word targeted. It's a code word. To everybody out, don't worry about it. You have to worry about that. That has nothing to do with you. You're not going to be a victim like this. You know, it, it is used all the time. I mean, police departments are loath to use the word random because random suggests the worst nightmare, uh, you know, of, you know, a violent offender. And but this case, look at what this case has the questions it has raised about you have a very vicious crime involving black victims on September 19th, you don't tell the public about it, you don't tell the public you have a suspect, you don't tell the public here he is, you don't look out for him, etc. And then you have a crime involving a well-known white tech entrepreneur, and now you have a news conference the next day to announce the suspect, etc., etc. I mean, it it just raises that same specter of You know, black victims get treated this way and white victims get treated this way. And and it's it's most unfortunate. And 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 it could have been avoided in, you know, in many ways if they had simply treated that case in West Baltimore with much more urgency. And when I say urgency, I'm not saying, oh, you didn't do anything about it. I'm saying you you know, we used to have in Baltimore public enemy number one. Now, I'm not saying that case on the 19th of September would have risen to that level. But but that when you put a picture out and you put a video out, that means we need your help. We want to find this guy. We need your help. I mean, they had a warrant for him. They had a lot of information about where he had lived, where he hung out, et cetera, et cetera. And so there, it does raise the question, well, what were you doing, you know, et cetera.
0: And at the press conference, the commissioner made this weird comment of, about being within eighty-eight meters of him at some point prior to the murder of the pair. And you know, he he makes his comment, and you just sat there scratching your head, saying, "Well, if you were that close, if you put out his picture, you probably could have easily caught him if he was hanging around Baltimore City." You know, so it makes this even more frustrating. In many ways.
3: Well, especially with those comments that I read on social media, you know, they were they were making those comments after his name and photo had been put out after the murder. But the question is, if those folks had seen his picture, you know, after the and I I think it would have gotten a lot of circulation because the incident, the September 19th incident. Got a lot of attention. And it was so vicious. I mean, we have
1: social media. We have alerts that can be sent to our phone. There are just so many ways that the public could have been informed. And like you said, these women reached out afterwards and said, I've seen this man. I know this man. He lives in my neighborhood. If they had received that information ahead of time, it might have saved LaPierre's life. Jane, how does this calculus figure into how crime itself is handled in Baltimore? I mean, why wouldn't the commissioner want the public to have this information about a serial rapist?
3: That's a I mean, that's kind of the question that everybody has raised is, you know, what what was it? I mean, we hear what he said now, of course, he has said since that it was a mistake not to put it out and that now they're going to have some internal procedure that's he didn't know that it hadn't been put out or whatever. But. Um, I mean, I think it gets to that whole conversation about, you know, there. We had this incident on July second in Baltimore that again made national news, which was thirty people shot during a party um, in the in the Brooklyn Homes community in South Baltimore, and two people died and twenty eight people were injured in that in that incident. And there was an internal report done, I guess it was really by the police department about the failures. To respond in time or beforehand or to try to respond beforehand when they were getting calls from people saying hey there are a lot of people here and they have guns you know is there's fighting going on this was you know earlier that night It was on a Saturday night and then and there was a radio transmission of a police officer kind of dismissing it saying maybe we should just call the National Guard and I mean those those kinds of comments really convey an attitude and there is a finding in that report that police indifference was a major factor in you know the kind of the the lack of police response to those earlier calls in the evening you know to the response when it happened etc not having police officers there when it was very evident that they had a big crowd of people and and i think that is such an important word because indifference means we don't care mm-hmm. means so what means you're not important means you know whatever and and I think we we saw that again in this incident involving this repeat violent offender Jason Billingsley and and I hope that's not true but but it feels like it's the same thing that there was just kind of an indifferent feeling to you know this very serious incident in West Baltimore involving this man that or allegedly involving this man and the decision not to make that public, um, you know, there's a. Are there politics involved in this? Sure, there are politics involved in it. It, that kind of, you know, we're, that kind of crime is, it's, it's frightening. It, you know, it's scary. It's, it's another reason for people to say, oh God, look at Baltimore again. Um, but I think that. A police department has a long way to go if it has a culture of indifference.
0: It also shows that some of the priorities for police are managing the perception of crime rather than the reality of crime, as we've spoken to. And and it also, I think, to a certain extent, um, represents the idea of Baltimore being a city of boundaries, you know, a, a city that tries to, instead of taking on certain things like poverty and economic inequity, head on through through other types of programs really just wants to isolate those problems like we're the warehouse of the state's poorest residents and our job in the city is to you know kind of hem them in and you know and that becomes really where a police department like jane said becomes indifferent because the main primary task of the police department is to manage the perception of crime and the perception that we're keeping people hemmed in not that we're really going into communities and trying to come up with solutions
1: Now, as we alluded to at the top of the show, the questions about how and when and, of course, why Baltimore police release information brings us to another case we are currently investigating that has some similarities to the one we just discussed. It involved a woman who had achieved prominence. Actually, that's an understatement. It was a woman who had pioneered the field, which she literally invented, a world-renowned scientist who had literally changed the way we think about and study space exploration. Her name was Molly McCauley, and her case was also marked by a sudden and unexpected burst of violence. On July 8th in 2016, police were called to Roland Park, a neighborhood just north of Johns Hopkins University. There they found a woman who had been brutally stabbed. She was transported to the hospital, but soon died of her injuries. And from the onset, the case was a complete Mystery. I know police have released very few details about the case, but what do we know?
3: Well, that's a good question. What do we know? We know she was walking her dog. It was like 11 o'clock at night. Um, it's on a street. Um, actually, it's it's a it's a street that would have been quiet at that hour, um, dark probably, and the houses are these are not row houses in that particular neighborhood. So there's they're a little separated. So you would you could. Easily walk on on that street and not be seen at that hour of the night. Um, it uh, it has been a mystery. They they did some some coverage of it a year later, I think, trying to drum up some you know leads in the case, et cetera. Uh, but nothing. I mean, this is now seven years, and it's just nothing on the case.
0: Yeah, we know police are reluctant to release any information. We reached out to them. We actually called the homicide detective who who was working the case, and he would not talk to us without permission from the police department. And the police department, you know, obviously uh, told us, well, they haven't said anything, really, Jane, at this point. I mean, the one thing that really strikes me about this case, in, in some ways besides the lack of any suspects, is the fact that she was walking her dogs, and I think she had German shepherds, someone told me. And so we're working on those details. But really, that someone could be attacked by, while walking their dogs... Um, Jane has some very protective dogs and I'm sure her dogs would intervene. Uh, but you know, really, so it's one of those cases, um, in Baltimore that just where a person just basically disappears and then we hear nothing. And we have been trying to get information from the police department and we will continue to try, but we have gotten nothing. And yeah, we done.
3: have a, we have a request that's been pending now for three months. So we're, we're really pushing on, um, trying to. I mean, it's it's an unsolved case. We have many unsolved cases in this city. There is there is no question about
0: but it. But I think the reason we wanted to explore her case and, and the reason I wanted to bring it up in this particular podcast, in, in this particular episode, is because you know it was another life just snuffed out. And then, as Jane talked about police indifference, there's implicit indifference in this in the sense that they won't even work with us to try to bring attention to the case again so that maybe something would happen. And I think we need to highlight that. And I think we need to reclaim these lives that are just snuffed out and then forgotten.
1: Stephen, can you talk a little bit about the woman that Molly McCauley was? She has an amazing resume. It's absolutely exceptional.
0: Yeah, I mean, her resume would put anybody, make them feel that their lives, they'd done very little. She was, she was an economist. You know, she got her Ph.D. at Johns Hopkins in economics, but over time she evolved into a person who would apply economics to space exploration in a way that people never really thought of. Just an example: I, I read one of her papers. She had come up with a way because there's a big problem of detritus and and space junk because so many satellites have been launched and people don't really take care of their satellites. So she had proposed an idea where you charge a tax to these satellites before they go up and you rebate it if you take care of, of the you know the subsequent fallout from the from the from the satellite. This was entirely something that she had kind of invented and and a, and, and a way of approaching a problem that is really important because we use satellites for everything, right? Our cell phones, you know, our geo tracking and and it could be a big problem if this space debris is not handled because it can literally destroy another satellite. So she had come up with this really smart very logical and seemingly effective solution. And um, that's why she was revered by her colleagues as being sort of a pioneer, but also a really excellent critical thinker. And many people said she had mentored them as they got into this world of space economy. She worked for a future, um, a a think tank that focuses on the future and the use of resources. So, so many critical, elemental things uh, about our world. It affects our lives you know, just like LePere in a way, she was working on something very vital to the future of civilization. So it's it's really extraordinary life. And we're going to break it more down because we have reached out to her friends and we're going to try to put together the story of her life, not just her case.
1: Jane, I know you reached out to the police department for just basic information. What's happened?
3: Well, look, it's an open case and that makes it hard because, you know, they're not going to release a lot of you know, information in an open investigation. But generally, you can get the initial incident information, just the kind of who, what, when and where. And, you know, we are trying to access that information now. It, I mean, the case got a lot of attention when it happened. It got some attention a year later when they actually, you know, put the detective forward and were trying to generate some information about it. Um, You know, but it, it's difficult when when, a, when the folks who hold the information don't want to share it, and really don't want to say anything about it. It can be it can be very difficult. So we are working on other people, etc., that um, you know might have some information. And well, some you know, leads.
1: I would imagine there's a difference between an open investigation and an active investigation.
3: Yeah, that's a really good question, Theo. That is a really good question about yeah. I mean, that's why you have cold case squads. You know, they uh, you have cases that you know sit around and. Maybe something happens down the road, you know, that you get information about it, but for the most part, they're pretty inactive.
0: Yeah, I mean, when we when we were working on the Ray Rivera case, um, you know, which is the young man who supposedly jumped off the Belvedere and became a big topic of the Netflix Unsolved Mysteries, when we finally got the homicide files, this case is technically open and none of the information is supposed to be released, but it was, I think, because of Netflix. And you look through the case files and they hadn't done anything since June of 2006. So... All that time they had been saying, you know, it's an open investigation, ongoing investigation. Well, according to the homicide files, and I can't say with, you know, complete certainty, but according to the homicide files, they hadn't done a thing. So there is, I think, a lack of balance between, you know, we have to keep it secret because it's an open investigation or we have to share information with the public. I think that balance needs to be rethought, in my opinion.
1: You know, I think it's interesting how Baltimore and its addiction to violence can simply swallow up victims and seem so content to just let the case languish. I mean, for all we know, Molly's killer could have killed again. And and as we know, police have no incentive or legal obligation to release any information whatsoever. Jane, in light of these recent cases, does that need to change?
3: Well, I think that there's some discussion about that going on because of the what happened in the Pavel LaPere case and the <clears throat> lack of, you know, public inf- warning um, about this individual. I think there's some discussion going on about it. But I got to tell you, I mean, so so the commissioner, Richard Worley, was confirmed by the Baltimore City Council. He was confirmed without, he sailed through. I mean, there was one no vote, happened to come from the city council representative that represents Brooklyn Homes, where 30 people were shot on July 2nd. Only no vote. And there was very little discussion, frankly. And so, it, you know, there is a public safety committee on the Baltimore City Council. This would certainly, to me, be, you know, something that a legislative committee like that might really take on is, you know, kind of a real discussion of public information um, and, and when it should be public and, and how do you get it to the public, et cetera. I, I hope that happens you know because we have we do have a violent crime problem you know there may be ways that you can really uh, and there and there's also a problem of people don't want to cooperate uh, with you know with police etc all of those things kind of you know weave together in terms of your communication with the public and your relationship with the public in order to help reduce crime and to get to a better level of public safety um, but the idea of informing the public is certainly something that that should get a lot of discussion.
1: So, as Stephen said in our next episode, we will be delving into Molly's case, not just about her death, but her life as well. All that will be coming up on the next episode of The Land of the Unsolved. Jane and Stephen, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Land of the Unsolved. If you have any information or tips on our cases, please reach out to us at land of the unsolved at gmail dot com. Thank you for joining us.